you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to John and chapter 1. Fourth Gospel and chapter 1. We, are be, we will be in verses 1 through 5 in our time together this morning. John 1 and 1 through 5. As we said last week, we're taking a short three-week break um, from Luke to do a three-week series um, through just John 1, 1 through 18. And we've entitled it Before, After, and Forever because that's the outline of the series. Okay, so today is before, next week will be after, and then on Christmas Eve it'll be forever. So today, John 1, 1 through 5, I will be reading out of the Christian Standard Bible this week. Uh, and it'll be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there as well. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's uh, read these words together. The Holy Spirit says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, Not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. When you hear the word Christmas, I wonder what sorts of thoughts come to your mind. What do you picture? What sorts of emotions does the mere mention of that word Christmas evoke? Maybe the first sorts of things you think are family gatherings. Maybe you picture lights and trees or meals or the smells or the sounds or of tearing paper or music. Maybe you think of traditions. Maybe you get really weird and anxious about the busyness, right? Maybe it creates joy, maybe anxiety, thinking about planning and traveling or all the gifts you have to buy. But now, what if we added a little wrinkle? What if I added the word war to Christmas? Well, what would you think of then? War and Christmas or, or battle with the word Christmas. Maybe think of the, you know, so-called culture war that has kind of surrounded Christmas for some time that says things like keep Christ in Christmas. You've heard this phrase before. Or the battles in public square regarding decorations in public places or whether or not businesses and advertisements say Merry Christmas, right, instead of Happy Holidays or if cashiers and retail employees greet you with the correct verbiage, or you remember the color of the Starbucks cups, remember when that was a thing, whether they're sufficiently Christian and things like this. Maybe if you're a history buff, you think of the Christmas truce of World War I, where the two sides decided to cease their battle on Christmas Day to come together and like play soccer and exchange small gifts before uh, you know, the next day they turn their guns back on one another. Now, there is a Christmas battle that I want to bring to your attention that far surpasses any of the ones that you could think of. In fact, it is one of the most important Christmas wars in the history of the world. And the one I'm thinking of took place nearly 1,700 years ago. The conflict commenced when an elder in Alexandria by the name of Arius began spreading a new and novel teaching concerning Jesus. Arius insisted that Jesus was not equal with the Father, that Jesus was not God, that Jesus was not eternal, 
and was therefore a created being. Arius said that, quote, there was once a time when Christ was not. His understanding of, of verses like John 3.16 was that begetting was equivalent with creating, and that God created Jesus as his first and highest being made by God to fashion a universe. Being very charismatic, Arius' teaching spread, which created a theological controversy that reached the attention of the Emperor Constantine, leading to what would become the first ecumenical council in Nicaea. Hundreds of bishops from around the empire gathered to address this heresy, included among uh, those gathered was a bishop of Myra whose name was Nicholas, who would later be venerated and thus be called Saint Nicholas. Nicholas was a staunch defender of orthodoxy and, like almost every bishop of Nicaea, insisted that Jesus was not created but is eternal, existing in eternity's past and equal with the Father. Now, legend has it that Nicholas took such exception to Arius' heresy that at the Council of Nicaea, Nicholas was listening to Arius spout his beliefs, denigrating the eternality of Jesus, and he just couldn't take it anymore And so he walked right up to Arius, and he slapped him across the face. So you know what that means. Santa slapped a guy, okay? Maybe, probably not. It was later written of Nicholas, Santa, that thanks to the teaching of St. Nicholas, the metropolis of Myra alone was untouched by the filth of the Arian heresy, which it firmly rejected as a death-dealing poison. Now, eventually... The bishops came to a consensus, and they declared Arius' teaching about Jesus a heresy. And they published what's known as the Nicene Creed, which in part says of Jesus this, okay? He is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Now this was a war on Christmas, and it was worthy one to fight. A fight more important and worthy of energy than the colors of coffee cups or decorations in the public scare, the square, or whether or not a cashier pulling a double shift greets us with Merry Christmas rather than Happy Holidays. And why was this a war on Christmas? Because it was a battle over the very identity of the Jesus of Bethlehem. And lest we deem this a fight only worthy for stuffy theologians and eggheads in seminaries off in the distance, we need to be reminded that this is a doctrine that is at the very heart of Christianity. We need to be reminded that the identity of Jesus is the most important question of all, and that it has practical implications for how we live our lives, and eternity, which is why it is something we talk about here at First Baptist, and we talk of it often. Not only is the question of Jesus' identity crucial for the faith and thus not reserved for professional theologians, but it's also a question that cannot be left to dead saints from the fourth century. You don't believe me? Listen to this. There was a survey conducted a few years ago by Legionnaire and Lifeway Research, and it found that 78 percent of evangelicals agreed with this statement. Jesus was the first and greatest being created by God. That's a heresy. (laughs) That's the same heresy that was condemned in Isaiah. 
that the identity of Jesus is the most important fact that we need to get right, yes? And that identity is put before us in vivid color in our text this morning. Let's consider three things, okay, regarding the Christ of Christmas from this rich text. Three things starting with point number one. Point one, Jesus, his eternity, okay? Jesus, comma, his eternity. Now, one who is familiar with the way in which the other Gospels begin their sketches of Jesus' life are struck immediately by how different John's Gospel begins, right? Unlike Matthew and Luke, John doesn't begin with the story of the nativity. He doesn't start with a genealogy or the earthly characters that are involved. Instead, John reaches much further back in a prologue that comprises these first 18 verses. We must also be struck by just how incredible John's words are here in this prologue. They are beyond, I think, what mortal minds can take. And any pastor undertaking to preach these words will quickly, as I did, find himself inadequate for such a task. Augustine in Christostom said, It is beyond the power of man to speak as John does in the prologue. John Calvin wrote of the prologue, rather, should we be satisfied with this heavenly oracle knowing that it says much more than our minds can take in? And how does John begin? With the words that are familiar to his readers, right? What are the very first words? In the beginning. And where does your mind go? Back to Genesis 1.1, where the first words of Scripture are, in the beginning, God created. So what are the readers expecting if you're reading this first time, when you read these familiar words, we're expecting, in the beginning, God. But now, what do we have here? In the beginning, the Word. Now, our author is making a profound claim about Jesus, who is the Word. Just in referring to Jesus as the Word, John is communicating that Jesus is the powerful self-expression and revelation of God. Now, if you want to know what God is like... You need to look to Jesus, which is something we'll expound more in our second point, okay? So now, contra Arius, John is saying what about the existence of the Word? He doesn't say that the Word was created with the rest of creation at the time of the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was already there in the beginning, do you see? So when John says, in the beginning, he isn't simply referring to the act of creation, but to what existed when creation came into being. Who was already there when all things were made? It's Jesus. One commentator said it this way, beginning combines two meanings, in the beginning of history and at the root of the universe. The term, therefore, is not referring to the first point in a temporal sequence, but to that which lies beyond time. Jesus, the word, was, underline that, already there when the universe was spoken into being. And this is why verse 2 is sort of a restatement of that first part of verse 1. Jesus was with God in the beginning. He was already present, not being created, but was there when creation was created as one who has existed before all time. Just think of it. Before there was a single galaxy, before there was a single star, before there was a single planet, before there was time itself, Jesus was there. There was never a time when he did not exist. This is a very hard thing to grasp, right? Like, we know of nothing but being bound by space and time, yes? 
Now, we can't fathom of a time when there was no time. We are slaves to it. We will lament its speedy passing. We locate when we will do this or that by utilizing time, and there's no escape. So to consider that there was a time when there was no time is a very difficult thing to wrap our finite minds around. But John is indeed telling us that Jesus was there before there was a there, before there was a beginning, before there was time itself. He always was and he always will be. Church father Athanasius said it like this, there, was, there never was when he was not. For even if he phrased it, right, there never was a time when he was not would cause us to think of time again. Now, human words and descriptions and explanations fail us in trying to explain Jesus' eternality. We could say now, and I know this is not grammatically correct, that Jesus always was wasing. Okay? This is how hard it is to explain this, right? Jesus always was wasing. Jesus is eternal. He is not bound by time, but is timeless. He has no beginning. A succession of moments cannot apply to him. He just was. He just is. Now, later in this very same gospel, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer of chapter 17 this. Listen. And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. So if Jesus always was, if Jesus always has been, and if, as verse 14 says, he took on flesh to tabernacle among us, this means that he always was going to cause himself to be incarnate, yes? In the womb of Mary, in a feeding trough in first century, now that first Christmas, in the towns and the streets that he would walk in, in the garden where he would be agonized, on the cross on which he died, all of which he created. Paul Helm said, there was no time when the Son of God was not willing himself to be incarnate in our history. That is, God eternally wills that he becomes incarnate in 4 or 5 B.C. Given such willing, there is no other life story of God than that which includes the incarnation. Is that not an incredible thought? The idea here isn't just that a man named Jesus died on behalf of wayward sinners. It isn't that God sent someone to accomplish what Christ accomplished. It's that the pre-existent word who predates all things is the one who did all of those things. Now, who could conceive of such things? Shouldn't such a thought leave us flabbergasted? Let me ask again. What is that I asked at first? What do you think of when you think of Christmas? What do you think of when you think of what Christmas means? Is it what I just described? See, we hear a lot, don't we, about the true meaning of Christmas? Don't we? What is it? Every trite Christmas movie has its central message what the true meaning of Christmas is, right? And they vary. They're all different, aren't they? Let me give you a couple examples, okay? In It's a Wonderful Life, Jack, an all-time overrated Christmas movie, yes. The meaning of Christmas is about how people's lives can touch one another, right? And people can change the world for the better. That's the true meaning of Christmas in that movie. In A Miracle on 34th Street, the meaning of Christmas is that it's better to 
give than receive. In Rudolph, it's about acceptance. Or as one meme said, that deviation from the norm will be punished unless it's exploitable. A Christmas story <laughs> is about the joy a child gets when they receive gifts and the memories we make as families. A Christmas carol is about the joy you could give to others when you look beyond yourself, right? That's the true meaning of Christmas in Lifetime movies. Christmas is about leaving your high-powered, high-stress Manhattan job to return to small, nothing-going-on hometown and fall in love with a down-to-earth Christmas tree salesman, right? That you overlooked all those years when you were in high school together or something like that. In one of the great Christmas movies of all time, Die Hard, the, tr the true meaning of Christmas is the importance of family and crawling around in ventilation shafts, right? But none of those things that I described, even if they're good, are what Christmas is about, though. Are they? Like, even if we say things like Christmas is about family, we're still missing the point. Christmas isn't fundamentally about family, and it isn't fundamentally about giving and receiving, nor even making lasting memories or holding fast to traditions. When we say, keep Christ in Christmas, and Jesus is the reason for the season, we aren't really saying what we need to be saying to get to the heart of what Christmas is communicating, because we need to ask then, which Christ are you keeping in Christmas? Which Jesus is the reason for the season? The real one or the one that we've conjured up in our minds that we're more comfortable with? Because according to the survey that I mentioned in the intro, many professing Christians don't even know one of the most important aspects of Christ's person, which is what we've been talking about this whole time, right? That Christ of Christmas is none other than pre-existent, uncreated God. That the one in the feeding trough is the pre-existent Jesus who came into the world from heaven above and took on flesh of frail humanity. That's a staggering thought, is it not? Does it make you stagger, what I just said? Does it leave you speechless that the Christ of nativity is also eternal God? Or do you ho-hum your way through the story of Christmas? Do you hear the truths of Christmas and sort of wave your hand and say, yeah, I know the story, I've heard it all my life? Well, you start to realize the startling truth that is in the very first phrase of John 1.1. There should be no feeling of, yeah, I got it. Nor, this is a story other people need to know. Nor should this astounding truth that Jesus' preexistent God-made flesh be received with apathy or an unmoved heart. If these truths don't get your heart pumping and your emotions stirred, what on earth does? What about application? Let, let me give you three application points regarding Jesus and his preexistence before we go to point two, okay? Three points of application. First, learn more of Christ. Learn more of Christ. If what John is showing us is that the greatness and majesty of Jesus is more than we can fathom, and if Jesus is the word of God in the sense that he is the revelation of who God is and what he is like, and if we can only know God through Jesus, then what other pursuit can we give ourselves away to that is higher than learning more of Christ? What other intellectual pursuit can we learn more about that surpasses knowing more about the Jesus in the pages of Scripture? A.W. Tozer said, if the believer would enter into a better, deeper, fuller knowledge of God, 
He must prayerfully study the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. Let this be made our chief businesses, our great delight to reverently scrutinize and meditate upon the excellencies of our divine Savior as they are displayed upon the pages of Holy Writ. Is not the greatest of all commandments to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and strength? What's the fourth one? Your mind. Christianity is not the religion of the intellectually lazy. The greatness of Christ is beyond comprehension, and so let us not come up with excuses as to why we don't pursue greater knowledge of him, nor ever get to a place where we feel like we've learned enough of him. Excuses of busyness, or not being a reader, or not being good at learning, or not being smart enough, wash away under even the slightest scrutiny. We remember that we've learned to be experts in our jobs, and our hobbies, and our sports trivia, and anything else that we desire to learn. It makes no sense to say you love Christ if you don't want to study Christ. Let's illustrate it like this. When you met the person who would become your spouse, you endeavored to study them, did you not? Did you not make it your goal to learn about them? To know who they were and where they came from? To know what they like and what they don't? To learn what makes them happy or sad? Why? Why did you set about to learn them? Because you wanted to know them more so that you could love them well. Yes? And so you did the work to ask questions, to study them, to see how they reacted to certain things. Should not be the same of Christ, whom we say is our greatest love. Especially in light of what he did to get to us. We give ourselves to what we love. And the more we give ourselves to studying Christ, the more we will love and treasure him. How about a second application point? It's related uh, to the first, but is narrowing it on the Christmas season. Here it is. Spend more time dwelling on Christ than you do dwelling on other things. What do I mean by that? You know, during the Christmas season, how much of your time is spent planning and preparing? Is it a lot? Nobody wants to answer me because, you know, it's a setup. But it's the facts, right? Right? How much time is spent shopping and thinking about what to buy for whom and from where and when? And in all of that, where does dwelling on Christ come in? Isn't it something that we insist that Christmas not lose its focus on the Christ of Christmas when he is edged to the side in our busyness and our planning? In our ensuring that Christmas stay Christocentric, how much time do we actually just simply dwell on his person? Isn't it ironic that in less than a century, Christmas, Christians have gone from opposing overconsumption and consumerism at Christmas to demanding that the overconsumption and consumerism be done in Christ's name alone? Meanwhile, we don't make space for considering the cosmic, preexistent, Christ, whose greatness and glory cannot be confined confined by time and space. So this is my challenge to you. Spend more time this Christmas season dwelling on Christ than you do on planning and purchasing. How about a third application point? Give yourself to him. Simple enough. Give yourself to him. I follow the logic here, okay? 
if Jesus is the word of God who has existed before all things, you with me so far? If he is uncreated creator, if he condescended to our darkness and to our mess in order to redeem us, then what or who is greater than him? Tell me. What, what's greater than Jesus? <laughs> I'll start over. I got no place to be. Nothing and no one. So what or who is worthy of you to give yourself completely away to? To, to center your life on? To make the point of your existence to risk all for? David Mathis said, as a materialistic society marks its most material time of the year at Christmas, the pre-existence of Christ before all created things reminds us of his priority and preciousness above every gadget and gizmo, every present and party, all the trees and trimmings, lights and laughters, candles and cookies. Surely this is what his pre-existence means for us, he says, priority and preciousness above and beyond anything else not pre-existent. Jesus is before, and he is better than anything in the created world, and his preexistence calls to us with the quiet reminder that it is only fitting for such a one to be the greatest treasure in our hearts. You know, there's no verse that Church Father Augustine mentioned more than John 1.1. And he said that since John 1.1 tells us that the word is above all created things, then it only makes sense that the word be what we should want to acquire above all created things. Usually, when we want to acquire something, we have to give something away, yes? Like we have to give money to buy food. We have to give time to earn money. But what could we give to gain the word which is above all? This is what Augustine is asking. What could we possibly trade in hopes of gaining something of such great value? Augustine says that we can only give everything that is ourselves. However, unlike in the case of giving away money to buy goods, when we give away our whole selves to Christ, we in the end find we have in fact lost nothing. He said, quote, now if you want to buy this word, if you want to have it, don't look for something outside yourself you could give. Give yourself. When you have done that, you don't lose yourself as you lose the price when you buy something. So the word of God is set before us. Let us buy it who can. All those who devoutly wish to can do so. So in giving away ourselves to Jesus, the preexistent word, we lose nothing, but we gain everything. Now, when we talk about eternality, we know that being eternal can only be applied to God, yes? Only God is eternal. And John says, yes, this is true, and Jesus is eternal. So there's only one conclusion to be made which is that Jesus was and is God. This leads us to point number two. Point two. Jesus, his divinity. Jesus, comma, his divinity. This is what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. So not only does he say that Jesus was always existing, he says that he was existing right with God. The idea of with God, you can make a mark in your Bibles for this, is literally toward God. I mean, he has an intimate relationship with the Father. And now here we have the mystery of the Trinity, don't we? Jesus was with God, yes? He was in eternity in a special loving relationship with the Father and thus is distinct from the Father. 
and yet he is equal with the Father and is just as much God as the Father and the Holy Spirit. Yet there are not three gods, but one God in three persons. This is the mystery of the Trinity. Who can understand it? D.A. Carson says it like this, the word was with God, God's eternal fellow. The word was God, God's own self. Those staggering thoughts continue, don't they? Because in sending Jesus to come to earth and take on flesh, we have God coming down. See, the problem the bishops at Nicaea had that made Nicholas's blood boil to the point of throwing hands was that too much is at stake in getting right who Jesus is. For Arius, God created a being and went through the created being to create the world and become man and die and rise for sinners. Jesus then was like a contractor. For Arius, that God hired to do the work that God was one unwilling to do. But what does John 1, 1 say? That Jesus is no hired hand, but very God of very God, who himself came down and did what we read about in the Gospels. It's no surrogate that was cradled in the arms of Mary in Bethlehem, but God in flesh. God did not enlist someone else to go and die for man. He himself died for man. What an incredible truth it is. And we lose that truth and we miss that Jesus was and is equal with the Father and is as God as the Father is God. So Jesus, as the eternal word, as being with the Father, as being God himself, means that if we are to know God, we must know Jesus. Do you want to know God? Look to Jesus. You want to know God? You must go through Jesus. See, you can look at creation, and doesn't Paul say this in Romans 1? You can look at creation and know that there is a God. It's evident from creation. But to actually know God, to know what he's like, to know what he loves and what he hates, you have to be acquainted with Jesus, lest you will never know God personally. William Barclay said, in many ways this idea of preexistence is very difficult, if not altogether impossible to grasp, but it does mean one very simple, very practical, and very tremendous thing. If the word was with God before time began, if God's word is part of the eternal scheme of things, it means that God was always like Jesus. Sometimes, he said, we tend to think of God as stern and avenging, and we tend to think that something Jesus did changed God's anger into love and altered his attitude to men. The New Testament knows nothing of this idea. God was always been like Jesus. T.F. Torrance said similarly, there is no, in fact, no God behind the back of Jesus, no act of God other than the act of Jesus, no God but the God we see and meet in him. Jesus Christ is the open heart of God, the very love and life of God poured out to redeem humankind, the mighty hand and power of God stretched out to heal and save sinners. All things are in God's hands, but the hands of God and the hands of Jesus in life and in death are the same. These, these are the lengths at which God is willing to go in order to reclaim wayward man. The eternal plan before the foundation of the universe was that God himself would step into our mess in order to redeem people. Like the love that was found in the perfect community of the Trinity in eternity's past overflowed to create a world in which God's love could be shared. And what did man do? Spit in God's face. 
chagrined God's love. And he rebelled and he continues to do so. And yet God has always knew that man would do this. And he knew that man could not climb some ladder of deeds to get to him. So he decided in the counsel of the divine to bypass man's goofy attempts at salvation and enter into vulnerability. Can you get more vulnerable than a baby? Don't you see that this incredible truth that very God of very God came and took on flesh to live the life we failed to live and die the death that we deserve to die stresses both our helplessness and our sinfulness. And how much we are loved by God even though we don't deserve an ounce of divine love. Don't you see that in the incarnation? How fallen must we be if it took the move of God like this to bring us near? This is an illustration Tim Keller gave, and I use it nearly every Christmas, where he says, Christmas is about receiving presents, but consider how challenging it is to receive certain gifts. Some gifts, by their very nature, make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a present on one Christmas morning from a friend, and it's a dieting book. Then you take off another ribbon and wrapper, and you find it's another book from another friend, and it's called Overcoming Selfishness. If you say to them, thank you so much... You are, in a sense, admitting, for indeed, I am fat and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so is to admit you have flaws and weaknesses and you need help. There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. To accept the true Christmas gift, you must admit you're a sinner. You need to be saved by grace. Do you see? Consider the astounding gravity of the truth that God himself came to earth in the form of a squalling baby and took on vulnerability of being able to be killed by the people he created. How can we ever look at our sins and brush them off in light of this is not a big deal? How can we ever say that our sins are mere mistakes or not serious when they were so great that the only way we can be reconciled to God is for creator to come down and do what Jesus did. Why do we have such a hard time admitting that we are helpless wretches in need of outside rescue and at the same time say we understand Christmas? Remember our application points from point one? If you heard any of those points and thought, geez, that's a lot, then you haven't understood Christmas. Because when we think that there could be too high a price to pay to know God more than love God more and serve God more after truly realizing what it costs God to get to us, then we show that the true meaning of Christmas has yet to root itself in our hearts. I mean, what could it cost us really when it costs God everything to get to you? Whatever it costs us to make Jesus the center of our lives and to live for him and get more of him and obey him, it is nothing compared to what it costs him to get to us. Again, when you think of Christmas, what do you think of? When you look into the nativity scenes, what are the thoughts that swirl in your head? When you think of Jesus, what do you picture? What are the first descriptors that come to your mind? See, we have all kinds of images that may not be so helpful that come to our minds first rather than what should come to our mind, right? might picture those artistic renderings of Jesus where he's sort of holding a lamb and he's, you know, of course, blonde-headed and blue-eyed, sort of northern European. 
right, rather than a dark-skinned Middle Eastern that he was. And we think of meek and mild and accepting and requiring little. We use language like we need to accept him rather than our needing to be accepted by him. And what we should be the first thoughts when we peer into the nativity or think of Christmas and hear the name Jesus is preexistent creator God. Then you can start being moved by the real Christmas. Then you could be knocked flat on your rear end to think that timeless, almighty, glorious, beyond comprehension God came and took on the form of a baby. A baby. And why? To get to you. We should be overwhelmed over that idea that even while he laid in a feeding trough in an unregarded backwater town, he was still very God of very God. Timothy George said this, what, what is so decisively at stake for believers in the miracle of Christmas? Simply this, in becoming flesh, God did not delegate. He did not send a surrogate. He came himself. This stupendous, stupendous fact shatters all of our preconceived ideas of what God should be like. It means that the crucial mark of God's divine life is that it can be shared given, expended, whether in a squalling baby in a feeding trough or with a dying man on a tree. Let's consider our third and final point. Point number three, Jesus, his activity. Jesus, his activity. Jesus is not only preexistent, he not only was toward the Father with him in ages past, he not only is God himself in equality in eternity with the Father and Spirit, he not only was there when everything was created, but he was the agent of creation. You know what John says? Whom all things were created for. Look at, look at your text again. John gives us a positive and negative terms of Jesus' activity in creation. He, he says, through Jesus, all things were made. There's your positive. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That's the negative. So when we think back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We can phrase it like this, can't we? In the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Let me think about this. The one who spoke and all things came into being is the same one who cried from the lungs of a newborn baby in Bethlehem and said, I thirst from the cross. The same God who walked in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day as Adam and Eve hid in fear is the same one who walked on the streets of towns throughout first century Palestine telling sinners how to be saved by grace. The same God who rained manna down in the wilderness and caused water to come from the rock is the same one who said, I am the bread of life, I am the water of life. The same God who told Moses he couldn't see God's glory lest he be incinerated is the same one who touched lepers and restored sight to the blind. Think about this. You remember when the wise men from the east were to travel to Christ when he was a newborn in Bethlehem, right? What was their compass? It was a star guiding them, right? Think of it. Think of this. The baby they were going to see is the one who created the star that they were following, he created the sand they were walking on, the food that they were eating, the animals they were riding, the materials for the gifts that they were going to bring. 
The baby they were going to see was the one keeping their hearts pumping and ensuring blood flowed through their veins and that their lungs would push in and out the air that he made. He made all things, and there is absolutely nothing that has been made or will be made that was not made by Jesus. And there is absolutely nothing that has been made or will be made that is not made for Jesus. That's how absolutely central he is. Every galaxy, every mountain, every ocean, every planet, every drop of water, every leaf, every grain of sand, every speck of dust, every atom, every molecule, every electron and neutron in the whole of creation was created by Jesus and for Jesus. And as he was in the womb of a woman he created, he held it all together with the word of his power. Now dwell on that and go live for something else. Think about what's said in just these first five verses of John and tell me you have something better you can live for. Dwell on the truth of Christmas and tell me, tell me there's something that has more value than this. Think about creator God coming and entering flesh to live and die for you and tell me he could ask you to do something that is too costly. See, one of the reasons that John is beginning the way he does by reminding us of creation in Genesis 1-1 is because with the incarnation of Jesus who created the first time comes Jesus creating a second time. And just as the second person of the Trinity said all those years ago, over the darkness of the deep, let there be light. So he himself coming into the world was him embodying the light that dispels darkness. Just as he breathed life into Adam's lungs, so he breathes life into dead sinners. John says that Jesus didn't merely bring life. He defines it. He is life. Jesus doesn't merely bring light. He is light. And in his coming to earth, Jesus was entering a dark world in order to give the light himself. And what does that light do? Verse 5 tells us, it shines in the darkness, and the darkness neither can comprehend nor overcome it. What John is telling us is, before Jesus came into the world, men had no life to speak of, but were dead. Before Jesus came into the world, men had no light, they were in the dark. And men could neither bring life any more than a corpse could will itself to live, nor could bring light any more than a lamp could will itself to be lit. In other words, without Jesus, there is neither life nor light, but only death and darkness. To live, to truly live, we need life to be provided for us from the outside of ourselves, and only Jesus is the originator and thus giver of life unto life. Only Jesus is the originator and just thus giver of light unto light that chases away the darkness. So helpless are we that we need both life and light to be provided to us, the two most basic things to live. Men, for all of our boasting and all of our perining and all of our strutting and all of our bragging is so frail and dependent that he couldn't procure life nor light. They must be provided from somewhere else. John says that Jesus provides the life eternal and light that chases away the darkness that we loved and rolled around in like pigs in a squalor. What does light do? It illumines, it exposes, it heals, and it invigorates. That's Jesus. You know, 
When I was stationed in Alaska, there were a lot of things we had to adjust to when we moved up there. It's like a different country up there. Now, one of the biggest adjustments was the fact that for almost half the year, the darkness is out for the majority of the day. There's no light. And now my job was Air Force Security Forces with the Air Force's version of military police. And what happened in winter months when there was mostly darkness was people's moods would change. And there would be like an uptick in crime on base. And more DUIs, we had more breaking and enterings, we had more assaults and domestic violence and more attempted suicides. And the darkness had this profound effect on people's psyches. What was already lurking in people's hearts and minds was brought to the fore because darkness begets darkness. Now, if we wanted more sunlight in those winter months, what could we do? We couldn't manufacture it. We couldn't create it. We couldn't make the sun shine for us. We just had to wait until the spring when the sun would do the reverse. It would not only be visible more often, it would be visible most of the day. It was the opposite of winter. And you know what happened when the sun came out and stayed out? People were different. There was less gloom. There was less depression. There was more joy. Jesus' coming in the incarnation on that first Christmas was like a thousand suns shining on the world. The incarnation was like oxygen given to a dying man. And knowing that and experiencing that should change us. Should it not? Humans can manufacture lighter life for all of our programs and all of our diets and science. Men still die. People still die. All of our ingenuity has only prolonged the inevitable. We are at the mercy of our mortality. Men then, as now, couldn't tap into some inner light he had. He was sitting in darkness, and that darkness begat more darkness. Man more and more looked internally and to the things as we do now of earth to satisfy, but were left empty as we are, depressed, afraid, and alone as he continued to hurl more rebellion at his God. What we need more than anything else is life and light that is everlasting, and this is what Jesus brings. And only the Jesus we've described this morning could provide true life and light. What about you, my friend? Do you have the life that Jesus provides? Do you define life as Jesus? Do you have the light that could chase away all darkness and give you hope in even the most trying seasons of life? Do you know Jesus as preexistent, uncreated creator who condescended to bring you life and light? Is he, above all, the most glorious treasure Now, you, you may have regarded this entire message as dull and overly doctrinal because you think you just want plain old, simple Jesus. But which Jesus? If he is preexistent, creator God, then you cannot decide who he is. He can't be left up to your whims and whimsies. You need the real Jesus, and unless you know the Jesus as described in John 1, 1 through 5, you don't know the real Jesus. And unless you see him for who he is before Bethlehem, you won't be knocked flat by the story of Christmas, and you won't actually understand Christmas at all, will you? I wonder how you'll respond to seeing Jesus for who he really is as described here. What will you do?
Will you walk out of here today and be unmoved by such unfathomable truths? Can you truly hear who he is and what he did and be unmoved? You will be moved, but will it be in the right direction? Will you live for someone who did what he did for you, or will you carry on as the people you see every day that are alive without living and are darkened but don't realize it because they're blind? This is a glorious gospel and it requires a full-hearted response. The truths of Christmas demand more from those who believe it's truths than half-devotion and marginal cultural Christianity that dominates our landscape. This extravagant gospel requires an extravagant response. Let me give you one more illustration. We'll land this thing, all right? A few years ago, I came across a post online from this fellow. His name is Joseph Bottom. And I liked what he said so much that I use what he said like every Christmas since then. So Bottom tells of how he had a friend who was very godly, who was tired of the commercialization of Christmas. And to keep his attention focused on the purpose of Christmas, what he did, Bottom's friend, is he'd get one small branch and he'd put it in a pot. And every year, and he makes sure he doesn't get distracted by all the trappings and extravagance of Christmas decorations and celebrations, okay? And so, says the author, that's commendable, right? His fight against commercialization, but it's wrong. This is what he says. Bottom says, give me the vulgarity of inflated reindeer bobbing out on the lawn. Give me trees drooping under the weight of their ornaments. Give me snow piled to the rafters. Give me houses so lit up that the neighbors dream at night of sunstroke. Fruitcakes so dense they threaten to develop their own black hole event horizons. Gingerbread cottages and mouse king nutcrackers and wreaths on every door and silly Christmas cards and eggnog so nutmegged that the school children carolers cough and sputter as they try to manfully gulp it down. He said, tastefulness is just small-mindedness pretending to be art. He says, and Christmas isn't tasteful isn't simple, isn't clean, isn't elegant. Give me the tacky and the exuberant and the wild to represent the impossibly boisterous fact that God has intruded in this world. It's something very right in what Bonham was saying there, because really, what are we supposed to do with the truth that God came into the world? And shouldn't this fact swallow up everything else? And shouldn't such an extravagant truth, such an incredibly life-changing fact, be met with a response that throws tastefulness and tact and introversion and cost-benefit analysis and unwillingness to risk and selfishness and self-centeredness and living for oneself and navel-gazing and what about me's and living for anything else right out the window? What do you think of when you think of Christmas? Who is Jesus? May God show all of our hearts today the glory of the preexistent Word of God.